This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. In this edition of the Yonkazine Brief, we talk with Dr. Lisa Stearns. Dr. Stearns is founder and medical director of the Center for Pain and Supportive Care in Phoenix, Arizona. An international recognized interventional pain specialist, board certified in hospice and palliative medicine and pain management, Dr. Stern's passion for changing the face of acute and chronic pain treatment is evidenced by her ongoing care for her patients and her active research for a better way to manage pain. In addition to her work for the Center for Pain and Supportive Care, Dr. Stearns has authored numerous research articles and frequently speaks at medical society meetings around the world to share her knowledge and her passion to help her patients. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Youngest in Brief. Cancer and cancer treatment can be painful. And patients often experience pain from surgery, from tumors pressing on bones, nerves, or organs, and from chemotherapy and radiation. But each of these kinds of pain can be controlled and kept at a bearable level. Dr. Stearns and her co-workers at the Center for Pain and Supportive Care work with cancer patients to develop a unique pain management and rehabilitation plan based on a patient's type of cancer. Using a palliative care model, Dr. Stearns brings together a team of healthcare professionals to help create the best possible quality of life for her patients and their overall health and wellness. The Oncosine Brief is developed in collaboration with our online journal, Oncosine, at www.oncosine.com, where you can find additional information and the latest news about cancer, cancer diagnosis and treatment, and cancer prevention. Let's listen to our interview with Dr. Lisa Stearns. We're here with uh, Dr. Lisa Stearns, um, and you're the director of uh, the Pain Center here in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Stearns, before we're going to talk about the pain clinic and the work that you do here, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself, your background, how you ended up here? I'm a physician that studied in anesthesiology, and part of the options for that practice is to be able to move forward and do a pain management fellowship. So as I was finishing my residency, I decided to go forward with a a fellowship to look at cancer pain and uh, as well as chronic pain in the American population. And so I initially did my training in Utah following graduation, then moved here to Arizona. Now, when you look at, um, and and correct me if I'm wrong, I refer to it as the pain clinic here in Arizona. Mm -hmm. What's the proper name of the organization that you represent here? Our clinic is called the Center for Pain and Supportive Care, which demonstrates that we not only just treat pain, but we support the patients in terms of all their struggles that the pain has caused and to help them through multiple avenues in their life. Yeah, because pain is not just uh, an ouch. It's, it's really something that is really deeply kind of hampering patients in their daily functioning. Yes, and the longer they have pain, the more impact that has on multiple systems. So it, it affects not only their physical state and their ability to maintain their function, but it, it works on their psyche and can cause depression, can cause anxiety. It can cause social isolation and can cause a breakdown in relationships. And then they lose their spirit and their zest for life. Right. And then this cascading effect of, of the pain leading to a lot of disaster in that respect. Correct. 
Okay. Now, uh, here, this is the, a part of Phoenix, which is, uh, I would say, the northern part of uh, Phoenix uh, here. What kind of patients do you see? Uh, of course, you see cancer patients, but what can you tell me about them? The patients that we see have all different stages of cancer. So they could have had a cancer diagnosis and come from and, and be in remission or cured of their cancer and have pain from the surgical treatment or from the, the therapy that they received to, to help them rid of their cancer. They could be in active treatment where they have pain because their cancer has grown or secondary to the treatment that they're getting for that active cancer, or they could be in the phases where they are finishing up with treatment, but they're resistant to treatment and terminal. And we kind of serve as a as a stabilization clinic to help palliative care mm -hmm. to where these patients get treatment so that they have improved quality of life and improved function as they go through their cancer journey. Because that's often uh, misunderstood about what that means, palliative care. A lot of people often refer to that as end-of-life care, but that is not necessarily true. Correct. Palliative care is similar to supportive care in that we're here to take people with what would be considered possibly terminal diseases or very uh, significant disease states and to help improve their symptomatic treatment as well as their quality of life and their function so that we have them um, in a better condition so that when they go see their treating condition for that disease, they're actually as healthy as we can help them be. So some people, if you talk about palliative care, uh, say that, well, that's the end of it, and we may make the patient comfortable, but there is no active treatment involved anymore. We simply kind of wait the clock to kind of uh, take its uh, time. Is that true? Is there also more involved in that, uh, in that step of that phase of palliative care? I think that in America, when patients are certified for a hospice diagnosis, those patients then we feel that their life expectancy is six months or less. And so for those patients, they would not qualify for active treatment and that their symptoms are being palliated to make them more comfortable. But on the other form of things, like a patient with stage four cancer still may receive palliative care so that they feel better and that their symptoms are better relieved while they're trying to see if they can get their patient to respond to treatment. I think the biggest difference that we've seen in the, in the years that I've been practicing medicine is many of the diseases that before were universally fatal, such multiple myeloma. Mm -hmm. um, when I first came to town, life expectancy, if you were diagnosed with that, was stage three, stage four disease, was 18 months. Right. And nobody lived. And now it's a, a disease that we believe we put into remission. And these patients can have fairly long active lives and they may die from another disease process. So we have these patients that if we didn't palliate them and keep them healthy, it'd be hard for them to make it through their treatment and, and feel better. We see the same thing happening with breast cancer, with pancreatic cancer, with lung cancer. And so many of the cancers that, that previously were very, a patient had very short life expectancies mm -hmm. after diagnosis, we now see that these are becoming chronic diseases, much like heart disease or diabetes or, or renal disease. How does that change if you if you have patients in, in that category? And of course, you have multiple sets of different kinds of patients. But if you look at this group of patients, how does that change over time the way you, you treat them? Because obviously, I mean, if you were looking at 10 years ago, 
and you rightly said, some of the treatments, some of the cancers we couldn't treat. If you look at, at the kind of things that you can treat right now, how does that impact the way you, as, 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 as in, in pain management, are dealing with that? Is that also changing? It's changing over time as well. When we started in the late 90s and we were the transformation was occurring in cancer care, where we started having uh, significant treatments that became available that would help patients survive longer, we felt at the time that we would treat patients' pain aggressively and particularly with high-dose opiates. And then over the next decade, we began to see the difficulties that high-dose opiates cause patients, whether it was respiratory depression or endocrine disorders, hormone disorders, or changes in their, in their bone density or changes in their muscle mass and how well they did, as well as the dependence in terms of the, what the medication caused and the devastation that it had on their ability to function as human beings. And now we look at these patients and we look at them different because previously they might have lived a year or two, so we didn't really worry about what was we were going to do to them in 10 years. But we can't treat cancer patients like that anymore because every day there's breakthroughs that are occurring. So we have to look at a patient, unless we think that they're actively dying, we have to look at a patient as a possible long-term survivor and how can I not hurt them next year? by what I'm doing today. And, and obviously, um, when you look at an older population, uh, that may have a different meaning. But if you look at a pediatric population, younger patients who also can get cancer and may suffer from pain, there is a different reasoning behind there. Of course, they, you want them to live longer. Yes. Right. But even with the older population, when we see the baby boomers, mm-hmm. the baby boomers is one of the, the largest growth areas in cancer that we have. And it's because we're living so long. But we also begin to have a little bit of neurodegeneration. And so if we're starting to have a small amount of dementia or other problems that have come up with our neurological function, we don't want to accelerate that because of the medication side effects that we have. We want to preserve as much function as what these patients have, both on a cognitive or how well they think and how well they're functioning in a day-to-day life and not impact that or make that worse. Yeah, because opiates in, in general knowledge um, have an impact on that. Yes. They can slow down your thinking and your ability to handle multi-level tasks or abstract thought. They impact our reflexes, so we're not able to prevent falls. You may trip and not be able to catch yourself. You know, you can't, you, it's, we shouldn't be driving cars or we shouldn't be... Uh, operating machinery or our power tools or things that we like to tinker with once we retire. And so it, it's very impactful in that it makes it more difficult for these patients to have a full and robust life because we're changing their function with the medications that we're giving. And opiates play a role in that, but obviously getting older plays a role in that as well. Is there a point in, in that you say, well, when people get older, you really cannot really treat them anymore uh, optimally with opioids? Um, is there a, a crossover that basically say, well, I don't know how what the next step might be? I think the biggest point um, that we try and aim for with patients in uh, the physician-patient relationship and add the family in there as part of the partnership is that our goal is to listen to the patient and define what their goals are. What do they want to do? What do they wish they still could do? What is your family seeing at home? Are they nodding off while they're reading the paper? Are they doing the things that they used to love 
if those things aren't there, then we're probably impacting them. Either the disease is impacting them or we're impacting them with the medications or all of the above. And then how can we work towards those goals to try and get the patient to be able to live the best life that they can with the least amount of side effects? Let's take a break. After the break, we're back with Dr. Lisa Stearns. Dr. Stearns is founder and medical director of the Center for Pain and Supportive Care in Phoenix, Arizona. As an international recognized interventional pain specialist, board certified in hospice and palliative medicine and pain management, Dr. Stearns' passion is to change the face of acute and chronic pain treatment. Did you know that generic drugs are just as safe and effective as brand name drugs? Generics might look different, but they work the same way. And they can even save you money. Don't believe me? Ask your doctor or pharmacist. Or visit fda.gov slash generic drugs. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Ongezin Brief. If you're just joining us, today in the Ongezin Brief, we talk with Dr. Lisa Stearns. Dr. Stearns is founder and medical director of the Center for Pain and Supportive Care in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Ongezin Brief. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, palliative care. And, and of, one of the things that you mentioned was the fact that opioids are being used in the treatment of patients with uh, pain. We, we know about the media, we know about what happens around the world, uh, in, in the world around us, uh, that opioids um, may not always be good for us, uh, may have a little bit of a negative uh, connotation, especially when people talk about the opioid crisis. A recent publication I read was trying to explain how and why we got here. Uh, it, it talked about um, the fact that vital signs, including body temperature, pulse rate, respiratory rate, are important for the diagnosis of patients to find out what's going on with them. Uh, but that some decades ago, pain was also added to that list. And that kind of worked at the same time when hospitals and clinics start looking at the happiness of patients about how satisfied they were with the treatment. And for some reason, we ended up with, if you give a patient a little bit more of a drug, uh, then they may be happier or better accepting their, their treatment. Now, that sounds very sim simplistic about the, the start of the opiate crisis, uh, but this, was that leading up to the whole process of, of looking at pain in a different way as, an, as a vital sign rather than pain as an as acute symptom of something? I think in the 1990s, we began to look at patient populations and were identifying that there was a large group of human beings in the world that were suffering And at the point, we were thinking, is, are they suffering needlessly? Are we not listening to them? Do we not understand what their pain was? At that same time, the science of pain or pain management fellowships were coming into a realm. They were recognized as a valid uh, fellowship that physicians could go into and then specialize into. And at that point, we, we looked at how we could treat pain more aggressively to relieve suffering and help improve patients' satisfactions mm -hmm. and improve their quality of life. At that point, that was the same time of technology changes in the 
pharmacologic world where pharma started to develop uh, different delivery devices for medication. So now we had pills that we could have that were long-acting or patches that were long-acting so we could deliver an amount of a pain medication or opiate over a period of time as having on-demand usage. That then led to thinking about pain as a vital sign and why should we ask mother to hurt after a joint replacement if we could give her enough pain medicine that she's comfortable, that she can do physical therapy, she can be more active, she'd be less likely to have a blood clot after her infection or after her surgery Mm -hmm. and all, all the other problems that might happen secondary to that surgery. And we gave people opiates and, and as you stated, kept them happy with extra pills. But then at that point, we found that we continued the prescription of those medications. So even though they had gone through the surgery and physical therapy and they were out in their life, they continued to have pain. Where previously you would have a surgery, you would get very little opiates and then you would go through and you, we were just really told, you know, be tough. You know, my, my parents' generations and maybe your parents' generations were just, they toughed it out, they, they moved, they did things that they had to do, and, and we wanted medicines for it. And so when pain became a fifth vital sign, we saw that patients became very frustrated unless they were treated and given medication because they wanted their pain to be a two. The pain scale, the visual analog pain score... Right came up and patients didn't want to be a 10. They wanted to be a one or a two, and that required a lot of drug to get there. How realistic was that, that viewpoint? In, in, of course, there is not a single doctor, there's not a single human being who wants to see another human being in pain. Um, it's very uncomfortable to see people in pain. But you, you rightly mentioned about after surgery, I mean, or after certain interventions, um, it may be, quote unquote, normal to feel uncomfortable. And, and to have pain and to know how to deal that in moderation. Of course, when it becomes excessive, I mean, there is one thing. How did that really impair healing on the long term? Realistically, I think we were realistic to help think that we could help relieve pain. But I think we were incredibly naive in our understanding of how complex pain is. So if you and I both had a knee replacement, I might require a pain pill or two. You might require 20 days of pain pills. I mean, we just, it's hard to predict our individual reaction because it's based on our history, our previous interventions or our previous traumas that we've had, and our, and our memories and our mind may change the way that we feel what pain is like for us. And so the pain is real, but it's very different between individuals. Likewise, I don't really know what your genetics are. So I don't Mm -hmm. know what is the right pill for you. So I might give you too much of of a specific pill that might be bad for you that might cause you other side effects, you know, whether that would be um, more psychogenic effects or making you feel happy or feel energized as opposed to truly relieving the pain, where with me that same medication might just take away my pain and it makes me sleep and constipated and I I don't like it. Right. And so... If that happens and we give you those pills, then your brain learns to say, oh, I have a lot of pain because the brain really wants that medication. And that initially doesn't mean that you're addicted to the medication, but that it, it hits on those um, spots in your brain that are reward centers or comfort centers that make you truly feel good. 
But over time, then those centers are manipulating the rest of you to get more pain, to get more drug, so it can feel better and better. But the more drug you take, the worse you get. Right. Now, when when you look at pain medication and pain management, I think pain management is a good word for that. It's not only about giving people drug, drugs. It's not only about giving people opioids, of course. I mean, what kind of alternatives are there if you say, well, I'd like to uh, say maybe the patient that you refer to have a knee surgery or a knee replacement may get a high dose of, of a certain opioid or drug. Would it be, I mean, I hear stories that people can, well, no, ch- change that immediately and go back to, for example, an Advil or a Tylenol or whatever, uh, because they're not addictive. How real is that? Sometimes it's very hard. Sometimes it's easy. And, and again, that's more on a individual basis. So I think it's important that when we think of patients with complicated pain, we look at multiple ways of treating them. So how do they respond to different things? And and it's great now because the hospitals often offer a lot of complementary therapy. So they may have music therapy or they may have nurses that come by with aromatherapy or healing touch or something that helps patients feel better. On top of that, encouraging the, the family members on how to help the patient distract them, distract the patient from their pain that relieve it. And then also in terms of medication, we can look at different classes of medication. So not just go with straight opioids or the straight, what we call analgesics, mm-hmm. the pain medicine, that would be like the, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen right. or the acetaminophen like Tylenol um, or the opioids. Because they have a but, role to play. Right. They have a role to play. But then is your pain different and is it something that's more nerve pain? Is mm-hmm. it generated because the surgeon hit a funny bone in your knee? Mm-hmm. So like maybe the retractor was on one of the nerves going to the knee and now you have significant nerve pain. And so then do we should we add a different type or what we call an adjuvant medicine to help with that? So you'll see that a lot of physicians will add anticonvulsants or antidepressants to those pain regimens to help stabilize the nerves. So they're not so hyper excitable. So the brain doesn't get all panicky about the pain and the brain is calm. And then that allows the meds like ibuprofen or acetaminophen or the opiates to work better. Right. So it is a combination. It is really getting to know your patient in that respect. Yes. And then in addition to the the drugs and the therapies, you also use uh, the supportive care. I think the supportive care also has to do with helping people tolerate or deal with pain. So that approaches pain on on a multimodal approach. So it's looking at them behaviorally and making sure that they weren't traumatized by a surgery or a medical procedure in the past, and they're not having kind of signs of panic or something because they, they, they're not in control. It's looking at their spirit and how well they're doing. Do they have enough family support? Do they have friends? Do they have the aspect of hope in their lives? Mm-hmm. Or did they have the surgery as a last ditch because they didn't know what else to do? We like to look at their psyche and to make sure that there isn't a significant amount of depression in there and that they are optimistic and help help them understand why they become anxious and help them learn how they can control that anxiety through their bodies themselves without the treatment of medications. And then on top of that, I think, is just helping them getting back into something in their lives that they really enjoy, whether that would be a hobby or something to distract them away from their pain. Once they leave our clinics or leave the hospital, you know, what can they do to occupy their brains besides their pain? Right. Because if you think about pain, it will become all 
powerful and, and take over everything. But if they can have multiple things that they like to do, their, their brain will focus on the things that bring them joy. Let's take a short break here. And then we talk some more with Dr. Lisa Stearns. Over the years, you've brought opioids into your home. They helped when you were in pain, and you held on to them just in case. But holding on to opioids puts your family at risk. Learn more at www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. Welcome back. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Younger Scene Brief. If you're just joining us, today in The Younger Scene Brief, we talk with Dr. Lisa Stearns. Dr. Stearns is founder and medical director of the Center for Pain and Supportive Care in Phoenix, Arizona. As an internationally recognized interventional pain specialist, board certified in hospice and palliative medicine and pain management, Dr. Stearns' passion is to change the face of acute and chronic pain treatment. Dr. Stearns, before the break, we were talking a little bit about all different forms of, of, of pain management opportunities, supportive care. Now, you've uh, conducted with your team, you conducted a study looking at different ways how to administer pain medication. One was uh, about a process called targeted drug therapy. Uh, we come back, go back there in a minute. Uh, but what kind of options, if you deliver drugs or if you administer drugs to people, pain medication to people, what kind of options are there? So when we receive medications, most people are familiar with the oral route where you take a pill or intravenous route where you have an IV and, and a nurse delivers medicine through your IV, but then there's also ways in which we can deliver medicine. So an epidural route is more thought of in terms of when a woman has a baby right. and gets an epidural for pain control for labor pain that is a short-term time. We also have intrathecal therapy where that's in the spinal fluid itself, where we're able to place medication into the spinal fluid, which requires a very small amount of medicine. So when we think about the difference between all the those four routes of medication delivery, if if we say that intrathecal route requires one milligram of morphine, epidurally it would require three milligrams of morphine, IV it would require 30 milligrams of morphine, and Orally would require 300 milligrams of morphine. So it's, it's multiple hundred times difference depending on the space you deliver. So why is that when you ask? So if you deliver medicine orally, you ingest it, it has to go through your digestive tract, then it has to go through your liver and part of it's clear, then it goes out to all the body. And every morphine receptor that's in your body takes a little. And whether it does good or bad or that's where your pain is, then it has to get absorbed into your spinal fluid to get to the spinal cord and to the brain where your pain receptors are. The same thing happens with intravenous is that it starts in, it goes in the vein and then it transmits depending on where the vein is and it will still by, go through the liver and have to go out to the periphery. The difference with what we call axial route, either epidural or, or intrathecal or spinal medication, is that those meds are, are directed towards those nerves before they go out to the body. So the the distribution volume is much smaller because the 
nerves will have the receptors on them and that medication will be snatched up right away. So that is a very direct way of, of uh, delivering the pain medication. Yep. It's so hence the name when you said targeted drug delivery. I think we're looking in and we're cancer. We're talking about that a lot because there's a lot of targeted drug delivery towards a specific cancer cell. This in terms of pain management is we're targeting the spinal cord or we're targeting the um, nerve roots or the brain so that we can control their pain at that area, which requires a very small amount of drugs. And just like in cancer therapy, when we can target the tumor itself, we require a very small amount of medications and the patients have much less side effects and long-term injury of their normal tissues. Same thing happens with the spinal space. So we can take a very small amount of drug, deliver much superb pain relief, and cause fewer side effects long-term, both in the short-term and long-term for these patients. Now, you, together with your team, uh, you conducted a study looking at targeted drug delivery in in pain in combination with conventional uh, drug delivery or um, in contrast to conventional drug delivery. Tell me a little bit about your study. The study was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, just recently. Uh, tell me a little bit about that uh, uh, the study and, and about some of the results that you noticed. So we were looking at the differences between groups. Um, I have been working with targeted drug delivery or intrathecal therapy since 1996. And I've always believed that my patients have done better. But I felt that what is a value to society as well as to the oncologists and, and how can I show that that works? And so we went to um, a database market scan where we could look at the cost savings for, or the actual costs for what cancer patients have. So we took patients who, in the two groups that had similar types of cancer, had similar ages, were female or male pairs, and combined them and matched them based on multiple symptoms and, and multiple medical codes for what were billed and looked at that they they had to be treated for cancer and had to have an opiate prescription and set that as a start date and then followed them through for a year to determine what their overall medical costs were. Over that year, we looked at how often they were hospitalized, whether they went to the emergency room, whether they had physical or occupational therapy, what their office visit costs were, and what medications they um, utilized, and process that over time to see whether or not we targeted drug delivery was actually helpful, like what I thought it was, and did it cost society money, or or did it save money? Now, when you look at at, um, this particular therapy... Uh, money is, of course, I mean, treatment costs money, and that's that's it's a good thing. It's but it is not only about the money part. I mean, in, in what your conclusion was that uh, my understanding from the study is that it was yeah. cheaper. I mean, it was uh, better uh, utilization of was better than in in other ways of looking at things. But the patients also had a better response. So the data that we looked at for these patients, we were able to collect their prescriptions and how well they were doing. So. At the conclusion of the study, when we analyzed the data, we were able to see that the perception of intrathecal therapy being a very expensive choice for patients to make. Is that more expensive than, than other kind of therapies? We believe that it was, but mm-hmm. the study demonstrate that it's actually not. We showed that uh, patients had fewer days in the hospital, which meant that they were healthier um, and that they didn't need hospitalizations. They had fewer emergency room visits. 
so they weren't going to the hospital for pain complaints like they had in the past, as well as that their utilization of other resources um, seemed to be less and their opiate prescriptions were fewer. My understanding is also that uh, targeted drug delivery, I mean, it's, it's, it's very specific. I mean, the kind of therapy, it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody, but in the world where we're at today, we have to look at patients that are going to be on sustained opioid therapy or on sta- sustained pain management, that if we're unable to get their pain controlled with reasonable amounts of oral medication and we're looking at their side effect profile and they're they continue to suffer. The vast amount of cancer patients still have pain, and many patients still have pain as, as they go through their disease treatment. And so I think we need to look at long-term what is safest for them. And how do we look at this, this as an option? Previously, we used to think that, well, they had to be on a set amount of opioid to be a candidate, or they had to have set side effects to be a candidate. I think now we need to look at the person as a whole and not only the, the medications that they need to control their pain, but how are they functioning? What is their family saying about them? And what are their goals of care in terms of how well do they want to feel? And what does the oncologist think in terms of their treatment? What's hampering their ability to be treated and respond to the treatment? And long-term, what are we looking at in terms of, of days or months or years of treatment so that we can keep this patient healthy throughout that time? Now, you refer to the oncologist. Uh, are you doing this when you, when you recommend a patient to, to um, look for targeted drug delivery in pain medication? Are you doing that in tandem with the oncologist? We work with our oncologist very closely so that they understand that the procedure itself is a surgical procedure where you implant a drug delivery device like a pump that goes into the tissue underneath the skin And then there's a small catheter that goes into the spinal fluid. So we have to make sure that the patient is in the appropriate time in their chemotherapy regimen, that we won't hamper their or increase their risk of infection or hamper Mm -hmm. their chemotherapy cycle. And then also make sure that we're working with the oncologists in case of patients are on clinical trial. So you mentioned that it, it is implanted device. Yes. How does that work? I mean, if, if a patient is, is getting a, a, a device implanted, are they be able to kind of take care of that after themselves? Do they have to go back to the clinic on a regular basis? What is involved on the patient side? So the, the pump is implanted and it has a drug reservoir in it. And that medication can last anywhere from a month to six months um, that, of the medication that's in there. The clinician then programs the pump It has like a small computer in it that then can set the pump to deliver medication um, to the patient. And then it'll have a time that the reservoir begins to get empty, kind of like a low gas light on your car Mm -hmm. where the patient knows to come back. And in order to refill the pump, it's much like accessing a portacath where the patient has IV access in cancer pain or in cancer therapy. The same thing, it has a small port that we put a needle in it, take the old drug out and put the new drug in and reprogram it. Likewise, if they develop side effects or if their pain is is too great and we're not getting in control, we can change the recipe of the pain medicine or change the agents in the pump to to further um, address their pain issues. Let's take a short break. After the break, we're back with our interview with Dr. Lisa Stearns. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief.
clinical trials allow researchers to introduce new hope by providing participants access to cutting-edge and potentially life-saving treatments. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more. Together, we can stand up for all of us. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. Our interview today with Dr. Lisa Stearns was recorded in Phoenix, Arizona, in May 2019. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, what uh, patients can expect if they are working with you and are diagnosed or be able to get uh, targeted drug delivery as a way to help them with pain management. Then they get a, a pump, kind of a drug pump in, implanted in them. During the break, we were talking a little bit about the effects of that, because there are a lot of benefits in, 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 in doing this. Tell me a little bit more about that. Earlier, we were talking about the opiate crisis, and I, we right. are very concerned with our patients because in cancer, you often need high doses or you need multiple different types of medicine. So we, and the pills may be left around in bottles where our children or our grandchildren or our housekeeper anybody could find access to those medications and take some. And we don't want to be a part of the problem. We want to make sure that our patients are safe, but more importantly, their loved ones and and their acquaintances are safe as well. So the benefit with targeted drug therapy is it's very hard to divert those medications because they're inside the patient, and that's fully controlled by the clinician. So many times patients will hurt a lot and they take medicine and then they fall asleep and then they can't remember if they take their pill or not. So they might take another one or they they might get confused and take extra. And so those oral medications may become very dangerous. With targeted drug delivery, the rate, the constant drug is controlled by the clinician and then they can set an amount for extra. So in case a patient has extra pain, they can set that amount to be delivered if the patient uses a device to um, engage their pump to deliver more medicine, but only if they need it. And Mm -hmm. if they don't need it, it's not given. But it can't be, it's not out there for the rest of the public to find either. It's all within their pump system themselves. So it's it's a completely well-defined kind of limit, off-limit kind of uh, way of delivering drugs. To be blunt, it does not have any street value. Correct. Right. And and in that means that it really is completely focused on the patient's and all the side effects of what we do see in the, in the opiate crisis right now where people take drugs and do whatever it is to, to get high maybe, you don't see that with this. No, because again, you're dealing with very small amounts of medication. So the psychogenic properties that you'll get with the oral medications or the injectable medications is very low because the body does not require those types of doses. Now, before the break, we also were talking about the financial impact, even though This comes with surgery. It comes with a lot of uh, maintenance in the fact that patients have to come back to you, to the clinic, uh, to be readjusted, uh, maybe get another drug uh, inserted in the the drug device. It turns out to be overall uh, cost-saving. Well, the the study that we were referenced before the break was actually quite uh, remarkable and surprising even for me, who was a big believer. So we found that the average patient saved $63,000 a year in healthcare costs. So when we think about 
where medicine is going. When we look at value-based care, we demonstrated that the patients spend fewer days in the hospital, which means they have more time with their families. And, and less cost. And less, and less cost. They have fewer emergency room visits. And now we're looking at their function and how well they're doing in terms of their real life that we talked about earlier in the show. And so if we can show that this type of therapy benefits a patient on the whole and society on the whole, it might be a better option for patients and, and insurers and oncologists and family members to look at long-term. I can imagine we were talking a little bit about patients, but uh, what should a doctor know? Uh, if, if you're an oncologist um, and um, you deal with patients, cancer patients on a daily basis, or you work in, in other forms of, of medicine, what are some of the important things that if they, after this program, they may get some questions about, hey, I heard this uh, about targeted drug delivery. Is that something for me? A patient may ask them. What should a doctor know about that? If the patient has a question about whether or not targeted d- drug delivery is an option for them, they have to think about how much pain they're in and talk to their oncologist about whether or not they expect their pain to be fairly long-term, meaning even six months for most of us is long-term, meaning that we'll, we can become significantly disabled if we can't do what we normally want to do on a day-to-day basis in over a six-month period. So not only are they fighting their cancer, but if they're fighting pain as well, the disability will rapidly increase. Look at the amount of medications that they're on and if they're having side effects from those medications or cognition issues, or if they're afraid about having medications at home because of the, there will be a mm-hmm. crisis and the diversion that exists, that may become an issue that they would like to rather look at something that with uh, implantable drug therapy so that they don't have to worry about having those medications around. Nice. And, and cost as well. I think at the end of the day, I think we all want to save money in medicine so that we can help control society's cost so that we have money for other things. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. As a nation, we battle an escalating opioid overdose crisis driven by synthetic opioids such as fentanyl, but also tramadol and other drugs. Based on the latest data, this crisis claims more than 100 lives per day. In their response to this crisis, the government has enacted tougher new laws and regulations on opioid prescribing. These laws are, however well-intentioned, also restricting access to opioids for cancer patients. At the same time, opioid use has an addiction stigma among many patients with cancer. But how common are opioid-related deaths in patients with cancer? To answer this question, Researchers at the Duke University School of Medicine conducted a retrospective review of death certificate data from the National Center of Health Statistics, which provides information about the cause of death as well as the contributing factors. The researchers looked at data from death studio opioids from 2006 to 2016. They calculated the opioid death incidence from the estimated cancer survivor population as well as the total population of the United States. The researchers found that from 2006 to 2016, about 900 deaths were related to opioids in patients with cancer. However, this was compared with about 200,000 deaths in the non-cancer population. Opioids deaths in both groups did increase over time, from about 5 to almost 9 per 100,000 people in the general population, and from 0.5 to 0.7 per 100,000 people in the cancer patient population. 
the researchers noted that in real practical terms, the volume of overdose death in patients with cancer is very small. It increased from 59 patients in 2006 to 102 patients in 2016. The researchers involved in this study found that the death from opioid abuse as a primary cause of death is about 10 times less likely to occur in patients with cancer. Healthcare professionals like Dr. Lisa Stearns are committed to help cancer patients with pain management designed to improve their individual health-related quality of life. If you have questions about cancer pain and pain management, visit the website of the Center for Pain and Supportive Care at www.azcpsc.com. For more information about cancer, how cancer is treated, as well as cancer diagnosis and prevention, please visit the website of the American Cancer Society at www.cancer.org. For more information about clinical trials and drug development and how anti-cancer agents are benefiting patients, please visit the website of the American Society of Clinical Oncology at www.asco.org. Here you can find more doctor-approved information. For us here at the Ongers in Brave, we want to thank you, our listeners, sponsors, and advertisers, for your ongoing support. Thanks to your support, our program now has a wider reach with distribution via iHeartRadio, in addition to PRX Public Radio Exchange, and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. And your support made it possible that our program is now also distributed in Canada and Australia. You can also download our program via iTunes. And you can listen to the Ongers in Brief via Spotify and other streaming media. In Arizona, you can listen to the Ongers in Brief via Independent Talk 1100 KFNX, one of the top 10 radio stations in Arizona, reaching almost 5 million people throughout the state. For more information about that, check out our online journal, Oncozine, at www.oncozine.com. If you want to support our program, please visit our website and look for the Oncozine Brief. Here you can find more information about the way you can help. And your support for this program is important. It allows us to bring you interviews with experts involved in the development of novel diagnostics and new treatments. If you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866, and we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you all, and thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Youngest in Brief. The Oncazine Brief is produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hoffman, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncazine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about underwriting and sponsoring options, contact Sean Mayer in California at 949 923 1660 or visit our website at oncozine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.